So again, our focus this Advent is reminding ourselves of the ancient wisdom of grace, of mercy, tolerance. We're talking this Advent about forgiveness. Now last week we saw how revenge is hardwired into our brains. Now, from a historical perspective, there's a reason why that's the case. Before we had a society, revenge would protect us from harm. Uh, so much so that it is etched inside of our brains and there it sits flaring up from time to time, often with bad effect. But we also saw things are not without hope uh, because also hardwired into us is grace and mercy and tolerance and forgiveness. The problem when it comes time to choose between which of those responses we will marshal uh, is that our brains are biased and our brains are biased toward revenge. They're pretty heavily biased toward revenge. Uh, when the spiritual tradition was helping us walk our way forward, it has long understood and has given us stories and practices and traditions to challenge this bias that we all carry, to help us go up against that and, because we do, suffer less and cause suffering less and build relationships better and enjoy the fruit of a bigger version of we. But that bias that we carry in our brains, it is no timid thing. It is a force to be reckoned with. When someone hurts us, sometimes we lash out, or maybe we have learned to suppress that lashing out instinct, or so instead we will just hold a grudge or say something snarky or perhaps passive aggressive. Or maybe we will gossip or we will paint them in a negative light, or we will do something that will hinder them getting ahead in some way, or work against their best interests somehow. There was a good point made on Menti last week that it seems like holding a grudge, this person said, or turning the cold shoulder, they're an iteration of this whole revenge dynamic. So yes, <clears throat> this thing within us, it's pretty pervasive, it is in there, and it is pretty hardwired. But so is nobility, and so is decency, and so is selflessness, and so is honesty. When we are honest enough to acknowledge to ourselves that given the right circumstances, the thing that I'm so upset about, yeah, that could be me. I could be doing that. But when we are in the throes of that onboard bias, it's very difficult to take that side of the equation seriously. It's very difficult to hear what Jesus said when he said, turn the other cheek. Because our most common response to that is, I don't think that's going to work. Because if I turn the other cheek, I'll just get slapped like I did the first time. <clears throat> now later in the lesson, I hope to get to that text. Because what most people think Jesus was saying, Jesus was not saying. He was talking about the third way. He was talking about nonviolent resistance, but we'll get to that later if there's time in the lesson. Revenge is in us, we saw, the same way that hunger is in us. It's a hardwired drive. Revenge is in us the same way that thirst is in us. It's connected to our onboard sense of survival. 
Now that makes it a really big problem when we default to revenge, primarily because revenge is an extraordinarily ineffective tool. It doesn't just work poorly, it's damaging. <clears throat> Turns out there are much, much better ways to protect ourselves from harm. In fact, revenge often backfires on us and actually increases our exposure to future harm, the very thing that it was intended to stop. Now that's a quick recap of last week, and so before we begin this week, though, I want to respond to something that came up that I also thought was very intriguing in Mentee last week. And that is this, that there's a common <coughs> misconception that the revenge response, the punishment response, the adrenaline that it produces, the anger that comes up within us, is an integral part of giving us the empowerment that we need to go fight for what is just and right and good. So, that's true in a great big societal way, in a great big social justice way. We think that if we get worked up and we get angry, we can go out and make social changes, but it's also true in a very uh, sticking up for ourselves with our partner kind of way, that we have to wait until we get worked up, have the response before we actually go out and make sure we do what is right. And that's true. Our chemical reaction brain parts, they do have a place. Getting mad has a place. Reacting when harm has been done. It has a place, and the place is usually to get that motivation up within us that we need to respond quickly and to respond forcefully when harm is threatened. But to sustain motivation over a period of time, not so helpful. Adrenaline and anger and the revenge instinct, well, you probably know from experience like I do, if they are left untended over a period of time, they tend to veer toward um, vindictiveness. They tend to veer toward uh, the punitive, the resentful. The revenge instinct by itself doesn't really have the capacity to go long term. It doesn't really have the capacity to do much more than motivating us powerfully but quickly. It doesn't have a sustained capacity because in order to rise up and do what we need to do and do it quickly, it by nature imposes a kind of tunnel vision on us and it gets us focused just on the thing, which over time will actually diminish our own clear-headedness. And over time will make us less relentless, it will make us less creative, it'll make us less cunning. It will make us less compassionate and less understanding and less able to see the big picture and all of those are essential for perpetrating change over the long haul. Now, I want you to hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that anger is bad. I'm not saying that that adrenaline reactionary response is bad, that the strong feelings that get stirred up when we are wronged, they are not bad. They are good. They have a place. They're just very limited. <clears throat> they can't sustain us for as long as it takes to make a better world, to make a world in which all of us are less likely to suffer future harm. So what are we going to do about that? Because, again, brain bias. Again, instinctive reaction, instinctive response. Well, after the Oklahoma City bombing, the father of a young girl who was killed in the blast 
She was 23, old, 23 years old when she died. His father's name is Bud Walsh, and he said this about these two dueling instincts that we carry inside of ourselves. The first month after the bombing, he said, I didn't even want Tim McVeigh or Terry Nichols to have trials. I simply wanted them fried. But over time, I came to realize that the reason that 167 were dead was because of vengeance and rage. And when we take him out of his cage and we kill him, it's going to be the exact same thing. We'll just keep the cycle going. Number 168 dead is not going to help the family members of the first 167. Both of those instincts are in us. <clears throat> we carry them both inside of our brains. They both have a place. What's difficult is to keep both in their place, to apply them where they are appropriate and not where they are not. Our chemical instinct brain-driven instincts. They grip us in the belief that this payback word that I'm going to say, or this scorn that I'm going to give, or this shunning that I'm going to do, or the screaming and the shouting, or the lashing back, or the hitting, this instinct causes us to believe that that is going to, in fact, make the situation better. But when we're in our clear minds, we know that's not the case because you've been on the receiving end of that before and you know how you responded. We all know that that's actually not going to motivate us to do something different. It's going to cause just the opposite. We're going to entrench. We do that. So, of course, the person upon whom we would heap that kind of response would do that. Clear minds are not our state when we have been hurt. So, again, <coughs> the spiritual tradition has known this for a long time. The spiritual tradition has given us the tools that we need to go up against our brain bias. But here's the thing. As tools go, the tools that we're going to need to go up against our brain bias are pretty undramatic. A self-awareness worksheet when we feel the revenge instinct kicking in. It's here now, it's small and it's doable, but it is very undramatic. And so, do I really need the hassle? A regular practice of meditation to weaken the, weaken the control of habit over us in our reactionary responses. Or the communal practice of storytelling and story hearing. Knowing how people get to the places that they get to, where they do the things that we do so that we have a deeper understanding. It's pretty undramatic. And undramatic is by nature <clears throat> undramatic. And so it's easy to think to ourselves about those practices, about those things that we do to allow ourselves to overcome this brain bias. It's easy to think about them. Eh, I don't feel like getting up early. Eh, I don't feel like going to that potluck. Eh. So I don't think the reason that we don't do the things that would help us keep revenge in its rightful place and keep grace and mercy and tolerance in its rightful place. I don't think we do them, not because we don't know what they are. I think we don't do them because they're so undramatic. And we get up most mornings feeling pretty uninspired. And we get up 
most mornings feeling pretty unenthusiastic. And so we just don't do them. <clears throat> and yet we suffer the consequences. We suffer the consequences of weakened relationships, sometimes even lost relationships, because, man. So to help us, I want to talk a little bit about the high cost of not attending to our brain bias. When we allow our brains to make us petty, I know this really bugs her, and so I'm going to do it just to pay her back. Or I know that he's going to shut down, and I know that he can't hear me right now, but my need to talk is just so strong, so here I go. Or in a larger context, when I keep hating Republicans, or when I keep hating Democrats, and I keep hashing over the same old grievances, and I don't try to break up the pattern, and I don't try and see something that I haven't seen, we suffer the consequences. We suffer the consequences. Now we suffer in the small spaces, the smaller shared spaces with those that we are close to, a smaller trust, a smaller intimacy, a smaller strength of the relationship, the relationship upon which we're going to need to rely at some point. But it's also true in the bigger context, smaller versions of we divided by race or class or politics, divided by whatever reason is the revenge du jour. I saw a couple studies that came out of the Pew Research Center and uh, Yale University saying it's more likely now that newlyweds will marry someone of another race or someone of another religion than it is that they will marry someone of the other political party. When the things <coughs> that are required of us, the things that we must do to be able to rise above these brain biases and automatically default to our revenge instinct, when our approach to those practices, to those tools that our tradition has given us is meh, the consequence is a smaller tribe, fewer people hunting together, fewer people gathering together, fewer people strengthening the tribe or the school or the neighborhood or the city or the country. And that's a pretty high price to pay for, eh. We tend to go willy-nilly into neglecting our relationships. We tend to go willy-nilly into even destroying our relationships because we don't give enough weight to the high cost of losing those relationships or weakening those relationships cost us. So you might remember the lesson I did some time ago, don't lose hope to scope, how we live in a much bigger context than we, our brains are designed to work. We are designed to work in groups of up to maybe 400, but now we live in a group of 300 million. How in the world do you actually think about being a responsible person in that context? Well, that same dynamic of outgrowing the size that our brain can function with helps us understand why we might underestimate the importance of losing our relationships. When you live in a band of 40 people or even 400 people, you know when you have lost relationship because you feel the pain and it costs you something. But when we no longer see our interconnectedness, we miss how essential we are to one another. And that's very difficult to see when us is 300 million. 
but we are nevertheless still essential to one another's survival. So <clears throat> that doesn't mean that when we fail to forgive, we uh, fail to reconnect whenever, po whenever possible, just because of the size. We do. We must. We just don't. When we break relationships, we weaken ourselves and we, we weaken the network that we are part of. We keep the intimate relationships fragile and we take the outsider relationships, keeping them outside. We create a world of greater vulnerability and it's a vulnerability that we ourselves suffer. And that makes it more likely that we ourselves are going to experience future harm. This is what Martin Luther King was warning us against when he insisted that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That we, he said, are caught in this inescapable network of mutuality. That we all wear one garment of destiny. That whatever affects one of us indirectly affects all of us. Now, if that's true, that we are interconnected one with another, how long do you think it's going to take before the chickens come home to roost for you? Because we are a privileged bunch. And as a privileged bunch, how long do we think our privilege will insulate us? We can walk under the illusion that our dollars or our status or our education will insulate us forever. But if we keep damaging the context in which we live, it will eventually affect all of us. Because privilege is a very short-term illusion. The safety that we enjoy because of our privilege is a short-term illusion. If all do not care for all, eventually all will suffer. If we think that we can vengeance one another into making the world work, we are missing the toxic downsides that our brain tricks play on us. We're also missing the most, one of the most powerful parts that our spiritual tradition gives us. Because the idea of all not caring for all does not work. We get fooled into thinking it will because for short times it will appear that it does. <clears throat> for short periods of time we can gain advantage. For short periods of time, we can keep ourselves and keep our people safe, but only for short times. If we don't change the world, the world will not just harm the other. Eventually, the world will harm us. And when we default to the revenge brain trick and we leave the cooperation brain trick unplayed, when we leave grace and mercy and forgiveness, when we leave those dynamics undone, we pollute the water. And eventually, we're going to need to drink the water. That was a whole lot easier to see when we lived in small bands. Of course, we worked hard to restore relationship when it was damaged because the cost of finding a new hunting band or the cost of finding a new hunter for the band was so high. But in a society of 300 million, we can easily get diluted into the concept of eh, easy come, easy go. But that's just not true. Weakening the other will eventually weaken us. Damaging the other will eventually damage us. 
and revenge damages the spiritual tradition teaches us and forgiveness repairs one cleans the water we drink the other pollutes the water we we drink Remember the parable of the commons we talked about a few weeks ago. If we don't all tend to the water, all of us will suffer the consequences of untended water. Now, that's an important truth. And now I'm going to talk to you about a concept of when it's not. <laughs> because I know that I'm talking to people who have tried to tend their relationships and have faced egregious forms of harm and egregious forms of abuse. And to do anything but get away would be to invite further harm and further abuse. There are times when we can't do what I'm talking about, when we can't reconcile, when we can't move back into restored relationship. And many times in my role as a spiritual leader, I have advised people to get out of that setting and never, never, never go back. But the environment in which that is necessary is not as common as it is practiced. In many cases, reconciliation and grace and mutual forgiveness, it was attainable. It was possible. But it was also hard work. And, eh, maybe not worth it. So consequently, we don't do the work. Consequently, we don't learn by doing the work. We don't make the mistakes that are required for learning. And we don't try again. And we don't wade through the messiness because it is a messy process. And when that happens, we fail to model for our young people, for those that we work with, for those we go to school with, those that we live nearby, and those we live with. We fail to model learning together how to keep the tribe intact. We fail to model how to respond to other people when we have hurt their feelings. We fail to model how to respond to other people when our feelings are hurt. What it's like to be on the receiving end of an offense, what it's like to be on the giving end of an offense, and how you get through that to the other side. We fail to learn and we fail to teach one another because... Yeah. There are creative ways to avoid future harm without revenge, but we don't learn them and we don't teach them and we don't access those emotional skills. We tend to re default to entrenching or with, with withdrawing when we've made a mistake or when someone else has made it, when we have hurt or when we have been hurt. And when we do, we pollute the water and then we have to drink it. When people come to or sometimes avoid coming to our conflict resolution workshops or our groups or our practice times, usually can't imagine that there are tools that they could actually use to protect themselves from future harm and at the same time hear and understand and forgive the person with whom they have been locked in conflict. Because usually by the time they show up or resist showing up, the relationship has been slowly weakening through the neglect of those skill sets until they finally look up and notice how fragile it is or that all they do is fight and they don't resolve. They don't learn to forgive. They don't learn to ask to be forgiven. And so what they've done is let 
the emotion flare up. And then after some time, they've noticed that the emotion tends to subside and they tend to conclude, well, I guess it wasn't that big a deal. I guess everything is fine now. I guess it's all right now. But I use this analogy all the time, that there is somewhere inside of us a cup. And when we have been hurt, we put our hurt and we put our resentment and we put our payback instinct and we put our revenge instinct into that cup. And after the hurt has happened, that emotion flares up, the cup is full, sometimes even overflowing full. But we don't do anything, we just let some time go by. And as, we tie, as time goes by, the stuff in the cup tends to evaporate. And we're fine, and things are fine. Except that when we do that, a little bit of residue hardens at the bottom of the cup. And then when we do it again, a little bit of residue hardens at the bottom of the cup again. And again, and again, time and time after that. Now what the ancients understood was that forgiveness and understanding and mercy can actually take that cup and empty it. Doing the work, tending the hurt, dismantling the resentment actually empties that cup. <clears throat> but when we fail to do the work, after enough feeling and evaporating cycles, do it again and again and again, and that usually takes between seven to ten years, the residue is pretty close to the top. And when that happens, things don't get better. And they don't go back to fine. And that happens in friendship relationships, and that happens in spouse-partner relationships, and that happens in parent-child relationships, and that happens in business relationships and racial relationships and socioeconomic relationships. When we do not develop the skills, learn the practices, then do the practices to help us do something better than our brain instinct biases, there is hell to pay. It comes slowly, and we may not see it coming, but there is hell to pay. It costs us, notwithstanding 300 million people, notwithstanding easy come, easy go, notwithstanding it's fine, evaporating feelings nonetheless. We pollute the water, and eventually we're going to have to drink the water. Now, next week, I'll start talking about what those skills are. Now, let me tell you before we get there, they're going to be un dramatic. And the instinct is going to tend to be, I'm busy. I got things going on. I'll, it'll be fine. The instinct is going to be, meh. But I want to encourage you not to be fooled. Because the cost of inaction in this instance is much higher than we want to pay. Much of what we see going on in our society is the consequence of people two and three generations ago. Meh, I'm fine. So, indwelling spirit, may we be people who make a better world. May we be people who are agents of healing and reconciliation and a just mercy. Be that so. Amen. <laughs>